people whom Christ encountered during his earthly ministry and how he ministered to their deepest needs. And today we've come to uh, this woman by the well, uh, and the sermon, of course, is entitled, What Christ Says to Madonna. So thank you also for praying for us, Jono, um, that the Lord would speak to us through his message. Have you, can you think of a time when you've been really, really thirsty? And I mean really thirsty. My mind goes back to a holiday I had in Spain back in the 90s. Uh, I was, um, had my paraglider with me, which if you're not familiar is a very large sort of 30 kilogram uh, parachute pack which you climb up mountains with and then throw yourself off and hopefully uh, you come down in one piece. On this particular occasion uh, I was on my own, so um, having driven to this mountain I had the dilemma of whether I uh, drive to the top, fly down and then walk back up or get the hard part over with first and walk up, leaving the car at the bottom, fly down, and then the car is there. So I decided on the latter, uh, set off, it was middle of the day, uh, midday in Spain in the summer. Um, being a palm, I wasn't very uh, sun aware, so I had no hat, uh, no sun cream, and no water. Anyway, uh, after an hour and a half, with this 30 kilogram pack on my back, I was starting to feel it was fairly hard going. And uh, by the time I got to the top, I was absolutely famished and dehydrated. Uh, halfway up, I'd realized I need some sort of sun protection on my head, so I actually <clears throat> used my boxer shorts and put them on my head. A very strange spectacle indeed. I got to the top absolutely parched, uh, three hours in the blazing Spanish sun. And there was this, um, this camper van and two guys. So I went up to them and said, do you have any water? Uh, they were confronted with this strange spectacle of an Englishman uh, with boxer shorts on his head, uh, begging for water. Uh, with shaking hands, they handed over a five-litre container, and I downed three litres without taking a breath. It was an incredible experience of thirst. Maybe you yourself can relate to such an experience. You see, thirst is a God-given mechanism that alerts us to our need. It's crying out. It's the way that our bodies tell us that something is needed. And it's not only our bodies that have this thirst mechanism, but also our souls, our inner selves. We also have, you see, this inner thirst for life in all its fullness. We have this thirst for satisfaction and for happiness. And we don't want to miss out. We want to make the most of our lives. And every person, therefore, has this thirst in their hearts. Now, people turn to different solutions to fill that inner thirst. And hence, we come to Madonna, uh, an iconic lady of our times. Uh, she was born, uh, Madonna Louise Schiacone. Uh, she was born in Michigan in August 1958. Uh, she was born into an Italian Roman Catholic family. Madonna's musical career, as you may know, took off in the early 1980s, which was my era, uh, just as MTV was getting started. And she set the trend in many ways in fashion and music. Uh, as a pop star, she pushed the boundaries of sexual acceptability. Uh, she used sexual themes and innuendos in her music, in video, and on stage. And she liked, of course, to court controversy. Now, the question is, uh, what is Madonna's philosophy on life? 
Uh, how does she satisfy that inner thirst for, for meaning and for happiness? Uh, with Madonna, it's a little difficult to know where her public image ends and the real private Madonna starts. But certainly there is a high level of sexual expression and, of course, controversy in her per public persona. And if this points to the real Madonna, then her life ethos would seem to be very much grounded in the pursuit of pleasure through relationships and her sexuality. Uh, she is a material girl living in a material world. What would Jesus say to Madonna? Well, come back with me 2,000 years to a dusty town in Samaria in Palestine. The woman trudges along the road on her own. It's midday. It's hot as she carries the water jar. But the ache of her shoulders is nothing compared to the loneliness and the misery that she carries inside. The rest of the women come to draw the water when it's cooler, but they won't associate with her. She is shunned, and she has come in the middle of the day to the well. As she approaches the well, she notices a lone figure sitting nearby. Oh, he's a Jew. He'll keep his distance. But she is startled when he starts to speak to her. Will you give me a drink? Hang on, uh, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. You're not supposed to speak to me. Uh, he continues, If you knew the gift of God... And who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Living water. Uh, what on earth is he talking about? He can't mean the water from the well because he's not got any kit to draw it. He must mean a spring, but she's sure there aren't any around here. Otherwise, why would her great ancestor Jacob have gone to the trouble of digging this well? The stranger sees that she clearly has not understood. She is still thinking in natural terms. His next words intrigue her even more. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Yet she still doesn't get it. For a moment, her mind is captivated with the prospect of reducing her domestic burden. This water carrying, it's a real bind. Having to haul the water up from the depths of this well, it exhausts her. But if this guy knows of a spring nearby, hey, it would make life so much easier. She says, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Uh, the stranger now has her attention. But the stranger can see into her heart. And the stranger can see the real burden that needs to be lifted. The stranger can seal the real thirst that needs to be quenched. A thirst that she has tried repeatedly to fill over the years, but unsuccessfully. A thirst that she has given up any hope of ever satisfying. And the stranger now speaks to that deeply buried ache. Go, 
call your husband and come back. The woman, she is startled. The conversation has taken an unexpected and indeed unwelcome turn. I have no husband. He replies, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. She is shocked. Suddenly, she feels vulnerable. Suddenly, she feels exposed. In a moment, she has a flashback. It's as if her whole life plays back before her eyes in quick time. The hopes and excitement she felt in her heart the night before her first wedding. At last, she thought she had found the man who would make her life whole. And yet the sadness as that relationship unraveled. And then the second husband, and after him the third, and after him the fourth, and even the fifth. And increasingly, it became a desperate scramble to ease the ache and the pain in her heart that never went away. But after the fifth marriage ended, she then gave up all hope. Thereafter, she would sleep with any man who would have her. She was used and abused, and she felt dirty, and she felt trapped. Of course, news like this soon gets out around a small town, and she would often hear the word, slut, as she walked past the people in the street. Even though she was always with a man, she was isolated and she was alone. That lyric from her favorite Brian Ferry hit single, Dance Away, resonated with her. Loneliness in a crowded room. But how could this stranger know about that? He's not from around here. She's never seen him before in her life. She intensely searches the stranger's face. Is there any sign of gloating or malice? Is he about to ridicule her or berate her for her sexual infidelity? But it's with a sense of amazement and with great relief that all she sees in those eyes is kindness and compassion. Uh, the silence is awkward. What will she say? Uh, sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Uh, he obviously has some sort of divine revelation. How else could he know about this? But this was too close to home, and it was too close, too near the bone. Best to deflect. And so she tables the age-old theological controversy between Jews and Samaritans. This will get her off the hook, the place of worship. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Uh, the Samaritans were Jews who had intermarried with Gentile people. Uh, they were effectively mongrel Jews. They were held in disdain by the Jews from the other tribes who had not intermarried. From those Jews who had kept their family lines ethnically pure. And Jews would do all possible to avoid even having contact with Samaritans. 
and hence it had become a real source of tension. They wanted nothing to do with each other. And 900 years earlier, uh, for political reasons, the first Samaritan king after the, the nation of Israel split uh, was Jeroboam. And Jeroboam had not wanted to have his people go to the temple in Jerusalem to worship God. And so, uh, that was Jewish territory. So he declared his own place of worship for the Samaritan people, Mount Gerizim. And if the woman was hoping for some perceptive insight into this ongoing and intractable problem, she certainly got more than she bargained for. Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. A time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship him in spirit and in truth. The geographical place of worship was no longer an issue. Truth, true worship, was a matter of the heart. God is spirit. He is not bound to a geographical place. And now, with the coming of Jesus, true worship was of, through the heart and in truth. Well, uh, the woman, uh, she is still digesting Jesus' words. Uh, the stranger obviously has great wisdom and insight, but she plays safe. The matter can't be definitively resolved now. I know that Messiah called the Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. But the words that the stranger then utters leaves her stunned and amazed. I who speak to you am he. And suddenly it all made sense. The living water that the stranger had offered her it wasn't literal water. It was the water for her soul. It was the offer of inner life that would last forever. This water the stranger offers, it would bring her back to God. It would enable her to truly worship God in spirit and in truth. The inner thirst that she'd been trying to fill all those years with men in her life was actually that deep inner thirst for God. But of course, all those relationships and all that sexual freedom in the world, it could never replace that need for intimacy with her Creator. And therefore, it was with a sense of joy that she realized this was the answer that met, met her deepest felt need. Although she had long since dismissed it as a lost cause, she now realized the answer was within her reach. In fact, the answer was standing in front of her. Her grip loosened on the water bucket handle and it fell to the ground with a clatter and she turned and she ran. She ran back to the town. She now had a joy and a lightness in her step that she hadn't felt since she was a child. And when she got to the village, she said to anyone who would listen to her, come, 
See a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? That woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, she is right up to date, isn't she, with the 21st century. That woman at the well and her ethos of life would be perfectly at home with many men and women in our time today. Uh, In 1965, Helen Gurley Brown became the chief editor of what was at the time an ailing magazine called Cosmopolitan. Uh, She was already known as a staunch advocate of women's sexual liberation. Uh, From the 1970s to the current day, she has revitalized the fortunes of the magazine Cosmopolitan. And the draw card, of course, has been its widely popular ethos that the good life is all about enjoying sexual freedom, beauty, and money without any shame. And this resonates very well with millions of people in our liberal Western societies. But the reality is that Helen Gurley Brown is selling a lie. Sexual experience and the pursuit of pleasure can never bear the weight of our soul's expectations and its deepest longings. Ultimately, they cannot deliver. It's true that all you need is love, but it starts with God's love, and human love can never replace God's love. So what does Jesus say to the Madonnas of this world? What does Christ say to those who have the heartfelt conviction that happiness ultimately resides in relationships and in sensual pleasure? Well, Christ says several things to them. Uh, Firstly, Christ looks at them with kindness and compassion in his eyes, and he says, firstly, no one is beyond my help. You see, no doubt many would have written off that woman by the well. Many would have written off as a lost cause. She is beyond any hope. But she wasn't. And in fact, the reality was quite different. Behind that brazen-faced, immodest, promiscuous exterior lay a broken, bruised, jaded, thirsty soul. I'm sure we've all come across people who to various degrees have embraced this sexual liberation ethos. I recall uh, my university hall of residence, uh, two particular guys who were extreme cases, uh, incredibly highly sexually active uh, and in multiple relationships. Looking on at the time at those two guys, I felt there was little hope that I could ever reach them with the gospel. Yet the point is, How do I know what is going on in their hearts? How do do I know what thirst and dissatisfaction lay beneath that uh, machismo bravado? Uh, Go to Jesus' story of the prodigal son. Uh, What does the youngest son in the story remind us about? Reminds us of that very important lesson of Jesus. Sometimes those who make an utter mess of their lives 
can come to their senses. Sometimes those who make an utter mess of their lives can realize their only hope lies in coming back to the Father and asking for forgiveness. And of course, the parable assures us that they will not be disappointed. How does the father receive back the wayward, profligate son? With loving embrace and joyful elation. Of course, the father in the story is God the Father himself. Uh, We're told that the disciples were surprised to find Jesus talking with this Samaritan woman. Uh, In that society and at that time, this woman had two things going against her. Uh, She was a woman and she was a Samaritan. Uh, These disciples are probably wondering, what on earth are we doing here anyway? This is Samaritan territory. We should have gone round. And yet Jesus challenges their assumptions and their assessment. Jesus says, actually, there is great work that God wants us to do here amongst these people. Uh, Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And of course, that work had started with Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well. But that wasn't the end of it. The woman had gone back to the town. She had spread the news about Jesus. And by this point, the people are now making their way towards Jesus. And it may well be that the white robes of this approaching throng actually give colour to what Jesus then says next and his metaphor. Jesus says, Do not say, four more months and then the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe. Uh, The literal translation is they are white for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life. Of course, the Samaritan folk persuade Jesus to stay. Please stay with us. And he does that. And he teaches them. And as a result, many of them put their faith in him as their saviour. It was a wonderful harvest of eternal life which was reaped over those two days. But the point is this. It was amongst the most unlikely of people, in the most unlikely of places, and it started with the most unlikely of persons. You see the point. We should never write anyone off as beyond hope. In fact, it may be those who have made brazen, ungodly life choices who actually carry that inner thirst and sense of brokenness. And therefore, the challenge to us as Christians is to connect their inner thirst with the water of life, Jesus himself. And therefore, uh, we'd be wise to keep praying for them and to be ready for the opportunities to speak into their brokenness and to their thirst. That's the first thing that Jesus says to the Madonnas of this world, and indeed to us. Write nobody off, because nobody is beyond hope. The second thing that Jesus would say to the Madonnas of this world are, don't think I've come to call you to a life devoid of passion. I'm actually calling you to a life of 
true and deep passion. Uh, We're all familiar, aren't we, with those famous words of the 4th century theologian Augustine, but they're they're worth repeating. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. That's the reality. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. Having an inner thirst is not wrong in itself. Uh, God has made us that way, but ultimately and primarily it starts with a thirst for Him. And it's that inner thirst that alerts us to what our souls truly need. And we damage ourselves and ourselves if we try and quench the thirst with something other than what they truly and primarily need. It's a bit like a parched maroon survivors in a life raft on the open seas who resort to finally drinking seawater to quench their thirst. If it feels good, uh, do it. may well feel good for a while, but ultimately it doesn't satisfy. What many people do is they take the good things that God gives us and then they try to commandeer them into a service for which they are never intended. And for some it is passion. For some, it's intimacy. For some, it's relationships. For other, others, it's wealth, it's power, it's the job, it's the career, it's family, or it's alcohol. Whatever it is, the danger is that people take these good things which God has given us and elevates them to a level of importance in their lives which they should never be given. And then they look to these things to give them the happiness and the satisfaction in life that truly only God can give. And it leaves their hearts thirsty and it leaves their hearts dissatisfied. But that thirst is still there and that thirst points them to Jesus. It's the second thing Jesus says to the Madonna's of the world. The third thing I think we can glean from what uh, Jesus says here is I think we can learn from his approach to the woman and how he treated her. The surprising thing about Jesus' interaction with her is that he doesn't go head-to-head with her sin. If you were in that situation with that person, what do you think you would have said to her? It's interesting that Jesus left many things unsaid that many of us would feel necessary to say in such cases. Wasn't his approach amazing? Wasn't his approach gentle? Wasn't it masterful? What does he do? Uh, Firstly, he appeals to her kindness. He asks for a drink. And in doing so, he's establishing relationship with her. Secondly, uh, he appeals to her curiosity. He says to her, if you knew uh, the gift of God... And who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. He appeals to her curiosity. Uh, Thirdly, he appeals to her thirst. He says to her, Whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Uh, Often, uh, people don't respond very well to being preached at. Uh, To just say to them direct, 
You're living a sinful life. It may be true, but it's usually not the most sensitive way to approach the matter. And that wasn't Jesus' way. He was gentle. He was winsome. And he was wise. And he was skillful in the way he connected with this woman's inner need. If you're a follower of Jesus, don't you want to be more like that? If you're a follower of Jesus, wouldn't you like to engage with people more like Jesus does? Wouldn't it be wonderful to grow in that skill set and to be more like Jesus? To engage in, with people's hearts the way that Jesus did. Uh, a book I've been reading of late, and I'm still reading, is this book um, by Randy Newman, don't be put off by the name, uh, Questioning Evangelism. Uh, it's very, very good, very insightful. Uh, basically, his premise is that sometimes the best way to connect with people is not just to, to tell them things. The Bible says this, the Bible tells that. Uh, there is a place, of course, for that. But often people, when we say that, um, get defensive. His old premise is that often it is a very effective way to get people to think about what's truly in their hearts by asking them questions. Often a question will get somebody to self-reflect in a way which a statement to them or a, a propositional statement wouldn't. And when we look at how Jesus treated people, often that was the way that he interacted with people. Notice when you read the Gospels how often Jesus uses questions. Sometimes people will come to him with a question and he will answer them with a question. And it's a very effective and powerful way to get people to self-reflect and to look into their own hearts. And I commend the book to you. I've put the, uh, the reference on the bottom of your service outline. So, the challenge is to be more like Jesus in the way that we connect with people. To be gentle, to be winsome, and to be wise. Because these people don't know it yet, but their deepest yearnings are ultimately satisfied in Jesus. Jesus is the one who fulfills that inner thirst they have. And Jesus is the one who fulfills God's invitation made through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. Why spend money on what is not bread? And your labor on what does not satisfy. Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus, the great physician, the great doctor, who brings the healing that our souls need. He is the living water who satisfies the deepest thirst and longings of our souls. And we pray, therefore, that uh, you would give us that uh, ability to relate to people such that we can direct them to Jesus. And we pray you continue to satisfy our inner thirst for you. Take us deeper in the gospel, we pray and satisfy that longing which only Jesus can satisfy. We ask this all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.